Hey, this is Britt Vargas, and I am the High School Ministry Associate Director at Calvary Community Church here in Westlake Village, California. And this is our HSM podcast. Thank you so much for checking us out today. I hope this encourages and inspires you. Here's today's message. And you may have your seats. If you're meeting for the first time, my name is Aaron Kajumba, and I serve here as a high school pastor. It's such a joy because, like Sophia prayed, we exist to make disciples who live and love like Jesus. And so welcome to our 5 p.m. service. We're going to jump right into our text. If you guys have your Bibles, just turn over to 1 Kings chapter uh, 19 and just put your finger there. If you have a little uh, Bible, little note thing, you can put it in there and mark it. So we're going to be jumping into that text this evening. But what, sh- what we're doing with this series called It's Okay Not to Be Okay is being able to, pr- to help us think biblically through all of our emotional issues. And all of us are emotional. Say, I'm emotional. Say, I'm emotional. I have emotion. And that's okay. And that's okay, right? We are people that God has made us in his image. God also gets angry. God is saddened. God also has extreme joy. Like Sophie also quoted the verse in Psalms 96 that in his presence there is fullness of joy. And at his right hand there are treasures evermore. So even our God, we reflect our God, we image our God in having the, that kind of emotion. The purpose of the next now five weeks, there's a six in the beginning, the next five weeks is for us to be able to do our due diligence with God. To be able to, ha- to challenge us to acknowledge our emotion, our suffering, our deep joys, all those things, and then turn to God for help. Amen? And there's two main points we're going to be looking at tonight. We're going to see that God is big enough to handle the weight of our emotion. And two, that God is with you. Right? That God, one, is big enough to handle all the extremities of our emotions. And two, that God is with us. He's never going to leave us or forsake us. And if you're a person who takes notes and you want to title this sermon today, you can write down a biblical view of emotion. Right? A biblical view of emotion. And last week we talked about what it means to lament. That lament is a normal part of the Christian experience. And that even Jesus himself on the cross cries out to God and says, Father, my father, why have you forsaken me? He cries out to God. We have a God who is not uh, separated from us. In fact, even the God of Gethsemane, Jesus, the God-man, is so anxious for what is lying uh, ahead of him in death and crucifixion that he begins to sweat blood. See, our God is not unfamiliar with us. He's present. He's with us. And he knows and understands all about us. And why do we hone, why do we cement, why do we anchor all the things, all our conversations here in Scripture? Because, you know, we could come up here and talk about ten ways to, to, to fight stress. And I give you five points on how to do this, this, and that, all those different things. But why do we anchor all our verses, anchor all our truth, anchor all these things we talk about, all these topics in the Bible? Why? Because the Bible, the Bible says, specifically, God says through the word that... That it pertains, has everything pertaining to life and godliness. One, life. How to have life. Normal day-to-day life. Like how to pay taxes. Pay your taxes. Like how to honor leaders. Honor leaders. Like all these things are in there. Right? And then also, not only life, but also godliness. How to live a life that reflects Jesus. And so in Romans 15.4, there's this verse that says that for whatever was written in this book, in this Bible, whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. It's for us to be instructed. 
and that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This Bible, this word, these examples give us hope for the future. See, the difference between us and unbelievers is the fact that as we see this book, we see the Bible, we see the face of God, we have hope for the future. Our pain, our joy is tempered by the joy that we're going to have in Jesus. We have hope. We are people who are hopeful, who live in hope. And so that's why we read from this word because it gives us hope for the future. And God is present with us, not only in our extreme sadness, but also in our extreme joy. See, we have an example here in Luke 1, 46 to 47. If you're with us in the beginning, or actually in December, when we walked through our Christmas series, we saw a person called Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus. And Mary has this, this chapter in Luke chapter 1, 46 to 47. Uh, there's one, this, these two verses I want to highlight, but that text basically is called Mary's song. And we see in her response to God, her response to the news that she is going to be giving birth to the Son of God is this. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. She's experiencing extreme joy. Why? Because it's her soul, her soul, her mind, her will, and her emotions, all of her things inside of her, how she's feeling, responds to God in joy. And then also, not just her soul, but also her spirit, her innermost being. Have you been in a place where like, I just feel like this is where I'm supposed to be. Like she has extreme, deep inner source of joy from the news that she's going to be giving birth to not only her Lord, but also her Savior. See, God was present in that. And then on the other end, God is also present in our suffering. And what suffering does for us, and we want to highlight that because for us as believers or just as people, we hate suffering. No one comes to church and is like, hey, guess what? I brought my friend for the first time, and the sermon is a sermon on how to suffer well. Oh, geez, that's the best sermon ever. No one wants that. Because we, we want to fight against everything to be, to, to die, basically. We love to be comfortable. But what suffering does for the unbeliever is this. One, suffering helps the unbeliever to be called to uh, uh, to repentance, to turn from our self-dependency and turn to God as a savior. See, the world around us is always screaming that we need a savior. Like simply going down your Instagram or going outside and turning on the news or just looking down the street, you can see people driving crazy. Some of you guys drove here today and were cut off by someone and in your heart you're like, jerk. Like that guy, he needs to go somewhere else. Like you have all these thoughts about people. The world around us screams and needs a savior. And in fact, as we even look on our news today, we see that there's even a war going on and we need a savior from all the wars and even the sicknesses and diseases. See, suffering for the unbeliever calls them to repentance. Now also believers are also called to repentance. But too, for the person who is a believer, what suffering particularly does is that it's, it tries to do for us a work of the big word called sanctification, meaning making you more and more like Jesus. Suffering helps us as believers. I know it sounds weird. Suffering is a help. Suffering is a, a process of growth. Helps us look more and more like Jesus because we start depending on ourselves and start depending on Jesus. James 1, 2 through 4. James, the half-brother of Jesus, the first pastor of the first church in Jerusalem, writes this to these people who are in this time... What kind of issues are they going through? These are people who, because they're being Christians, are being put and lit. They're not high. They're being lit uh, like light poles on the sides of, rolls, of roads to light the pathways for being believers. They're being fed to lions. Okay? So this is the context of, the, the, of the, these people who he's writing to. And he tells them, dear brothers and sisters. Starts out all nice. Hey, how you doing, bro? We're good. Okay. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, Consider it an opportunity for great joy. Not 
just hear me again. It says, of any kind. Not just when stuff is really hard or really good. No, no. Of any kind. That when you have troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. For you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. When suffering comes your way, when promises come your way, count it all joy. Why? Because you are growing a muscle in you that you didn't have before. Some of you guys work out on the daily. Praise God for you. I'm on that plan three days a week starting. Praise God. It's going to be happening. I know. You're going to see some muscles here. Anyway, the point is this. That for you to work or to grow any muscle, there needs to be what's called like a resistance, right? There's a resistance training. And uh, our resistance trainer does all kinds of weird small things to work every single random muscle. Praise her for her life. But, man, it's hard. It's difficult, right? It's very difficult. But no one after growing like gaining some kind of, of, of muscle or losing some kind of weight or growing something in that their body says, oh, you know what? It wasn't worth it. No one, no one says that. And so what happens is God is allowing us to be grown in our ability to trust him and have a need of nothing because we're not fully content in who God is. In fact, in Psalm 46, 1, he says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of need. An ever-present help in times of need. So, we've talked about how God is present with us in our highs and our lows. God is present with us in our sin and in our pain. God is present with us in our suffering. God is present with us, period. He's always, always with us. And the best example of this, if you guys have read the book of Job, you've never done it, please, I advise you, go grab your Bible app or Google it and open up the Bible, whatever. But take time reading the book of Job. Job is this dude who has a God-appointed suffering. Whoa, what are you talking about, Aaron? This is a God-allowed suffering. Like God allowed suffering to come on him. What happens is this. I'm going to set the scene for you guys, all right? So you don't have to write this down, but eyes up on me. What happens is this. Satan goes up to heaven. I know it's getting really interesting already. Satan goes up to heaven. And the, the Bible says the sons of God appeared before God. So at this time, uh, for some reason, all these angels uh, would come before God and to be in his presence. And so he addresses Satan directly and says, hey, where have you been? Like he doesn't know. I don't know what God does. But anyway, where have you been? And he goes, I've been roaming the earth trying to see who worships you and who, who truly loves you. And then God says, consider my servant Job. Now the word consider actually means, it's a militant term. He goes, have you looked at my guy Job? Like that's my boy. He does everything. He loves me. He's for me. And Satan says, sure. If, if he really is for you, let's see what happens when I take everything from him. Remove your hedge of protection from him. And so God says, all right, I will. Do whatever you want to do, but you can't kill him. And what happens next in the book of Job is this. Crazy, crazy stuff. That it's a God-allowed suffering. What happens in, in the book of Job is this. Job 1, in one day, not in two days, three days, or a week, or a month, right? In one day, one, raiders come, the Sabaeans come, and stole all of his oxen and all of his donkeys. This was a very rich and wealthy man. And then after that, a few, a few minutes later, another servant comes up to him and says, guess what? Fire from heaven. Talk about random stuff. We're not talking about like how maybe there was an earthquake or whatever. No, no. Fire from heaven. This is like freaky. Fire from heaven comes down and took all of his sheep and killed all of his servants. And then another servant comes up and says, the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, came and stole all your camels and killed all your servants. And after that, again, this is all happening in the same day. And in the same day... The house where all his ten kids were, 
partying it up are all, like the Bible says, a wind came, a strong wind, and collapsed the house, and all his ten children are dead. Okay, that's a lot. Four things, like back to back. Have you ever felt that way? Like stuff happens like back to back to back to back. Where here's one more that happens to him. In fact, God leaves him with his wife who begins to nag him and says, why don't you curse God and die? It just has one thing after the next thing after the next thing. And his wife who's supposed to be encouraging him is saying, just curse God and die. And then you have another, another thing happen to him. Where uh, his friends who come to counsel him to be with him then up, end up saying, Maybe you are in this place because you are living a life of sin. Like there's no one on his side. At this moment, he has to make a choice to either trust God or not trust God. And in this, in this particular case, this is a God-allowed suffering. Now, what would you do? Would you fold? Would you trust God? Would you curse the name of the God, like, or the name of the God who owns everything, who, who made everything? In fact, what he does instead is that he recognizes who God is. He laments, like we talked about last week. He takes his issues to God and cries out to God. And then at the end of the, end of the book, he says this in Job 23.10. But he knows, speaking of God, he knows where I am going. And when he tests me, I will come out as pure as gold. He recognizes that God allowed this to happen in his life. And then he says, God, you, I know you're testing me and you're making me as pure as gold. Even Job has array of emotions. So much so he says, I curse the day that I was born. And yet he's able to say in the same breath, God, I trust you. Meaning there's, there's, it's a normal like life for us to have these range of emotions. But what we do with them is what makes the difference. In fact, Ephesians 2.10 says this about us. Us, you and, my, you and I, people who've been made by God, that we are God's masterpiece. See, masterpiece. We are God's masterpiece. He has created us as a new in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he has planned for us long ago. The word masterpiece means literally in the Greek word poema, which means where we get the word poem. So literally you, all of us in this room, are living poems. Your life is a living poem, a testament to God's perfect will and grace. Meaning nothing also happens by mistake. Why? Because you've been written out. You're a poem. Everything is being written out. It's like, it's amazing how God does that. So it's like everything happens on purpose for a purpose. Meaning you're also made on purpose for a purpose. To quote Britt Vargas. So here we are. We're in this space where God says we are a written poem. What it also means is that we are also beautifully unique. Every single person in their own way. There's no two poems that are the same. There can be two poems about love, sure. But the heart that's written in every single poem is different and unique. And what God has done, he's written you beautifully and made you beautifully. See, what we're going to see is that in our weakness, we're going to see that God has his provision in this text today. We're going to see God's provision. We're going to see God's patience. We're going to see God's persistence. Three things in this text today. First Kings chapter 19, we're going to see one, God's provision in our weakness. We're going to see in our weakness God's patience and God's persistence. Now, that was the intro. I'm sorry if you guys are like, oh, we're already halfway through. I know, I know. Praise God. Here we are. It's all good. First Kings chapter 19, let's open it up. We're going to see in verse 1, we see this guy called Elijah. And Elijah, the Bible says in James, Elijah was a man like you and me. That's what it says. And this man, through the power of God, was able to pray. He prayed and then the sky was shut up for three years. Meaning no rain. No rain for three years because one man uh, on, the, on, the, on the obedience of God prayed and there's now no rain. 
Because the nation of Israel was a disobedient people. There were people who knew God before, who trusted God before, but had now turned to idols. How bad were these people? They were so bad and deep in this hole where they were actually sacrificing their children. Now imagine you take time. And you, some of you guys have the desire to have children, to have babies. Imagine having your baby, giving birth to your child, and then taking your child to the temple to be cut up because you believe by giving that child you're going to get ten more kids. That's evil. They're killing all their kids. They're following this false god, the gods of Baal. So what happens is, as a judgment, God uses Elijah to pray and shove the sky for three years. And then this same man, this Elijah, ends up going straight to the king and challenges him and says, if your God is God, worship him. And if my God is God, worship him. And they go out to this top mountain, the high mountain, uh, and, and they begin to have two sacrifices. And this is basically a challenge. And on one side you have the sacrifice of the prophets of Baal. And do you know how many prophets were out there? 850 prophets. Now, if you're thinking about how many people are in this room, it's not 850. But 850 people who are focused on calling upon their God to burn up this sacrifice to prove that he exists. And on the other end, you have one man, Elijah. Again, the Bible says Elijah was a man like you and me. They dug a moat around each of these sacrifices and then poured water inside the moat of these sacrifices. And so the prophets of Baal, 850 of them, begin to jump up and down and cut their, their, their arms and begin to, to cry out to their God for release, for help. Help us, God. Bring fire down from heaven. Consume this sacrifice. Kind of like us. Like we're trying to figure out life on our own way. That's what they're doing. And what happens is their sacrifice does not get burnt up at all. It's like pretty embarrassing. And so through, through all this time, as they're singing and dancing, Elijah the prophet begins to taunt them. He goes, where is your God? Is he out hunting? Maybe he's sleeping. you got to read this. This is like, like really interesting banter. And then over on the other end, he says, all right, all right, all right, my time is up. Get me more water. And now he pours water on top of the sacrifice. Not just around the moat, but on top of the sacrifice. And this man who's like you and me prays to God and then fire comes from heaven and consumes not only the sacrifice but also the water that was inside the moat. Nothing was left, nothing else was left. Now you'd think at that moment, this guy is like big boss level, big prophet, like he's done it. If you're trying to figure out like what you, like what, what I want to, who I want to be like in the Bible. I want to be like Elijah. I prayed and God answered by having fire fall from heaven. And then this guy, after having fire fall from heaven because he trusted God, he goes out with his one knife and killed 450 of those prophets, the false prophets. Now let's take a scenario like this. Imagine you're in the T.O. Mall. You're shopping at the Apple Store, I guess. Let's just choose the Apple Store. It's a nice, cool place, I guess. Or one of those places that smell those like, nice little soaps or perfumes where you guys go out and try them because you don't have enough money to buy your own perfume for your date, whatever. Like, all those places, right? You go in and one person ends up pulling out a knife and starts slitting people's throats. There's going to be someone in, like, calling 911. There's going to be someone who's going to have a gun, because America. There's going to be someone who's, like, going to be a hero. Or, like, maybe some of you guys would be, like, video. Oh, this is great content. Oh, my gosh. Like, there's all these arrays of things happening, but someone would do something. But one man... Because he's under, like he's experienced the power and the presence of God, goes out and kills 450 prophets and no one puts a hand on him. Okay? How confident would you feel that moment? Pretty confident, right? Pretty confident. 
And then he hears a report that this queen wants to kill him. And then he runs for his life. Like he just called fire from heaven. He slayed 450 prophets. But because of fear, because of doubt, he's now running for his life. It says this in verse 1. When Ahab got home, he told Jezebel everything Elijah had done. Babe, this is what happened. All right. Including the way he had killed the prophets of Baal. And her response, verses 2 through 3 says, But Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so, he may, so may the gods do to me and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. She goes, there's a time on this. I'm going to find you at this time tomorrow. This is like a gang hit, right? He's like, at this time tomorrow, I'm going to find you and you'll be dead. And he runs and he runs for his life. He's so afraid. And verse 4 says this. But he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. What is he doing in this space right now? He begins to whine and complain. And it's like an interesting like shift of emotion, right? It seems like he has extreme highs and extreme lows. And some of you are living in that tension where you have extreme highs and extreme lows. And some doctors call it all kinds of different things. And some of you guys are just, maybe not even be, have a prescribed reason for it, right? And you might even know, like, why you're feeling that way. But this is where he's feeling. He's living in a place where he has extreme highs of emotion and extreme lows. And he cries out to this God. But how does he cry out to God? He doesn't cry out to God the same way David does in 1 first, first Samuel chapter 36. See, David says that he was greatly distressed. He was turmoil inside his heart. And what does he do? He was grieved when, when every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David does, does this when he receives this distress. He encourages himself in the Lord. He chooses to look inside his heart and to preach to himself and to speak to himself the gospel. See, all of us in this room... As much as I can spend this time, my vein popping, reading the scripture, showing you how God is doing all these things in our life. It doesn't matter if you do not hold on to this truth for yourself. Which is why we encourage you to, go, to join a small group, to read the Bible, to spend time in the word, to spend time in your car, listening to worship music. Li literally taking time waiting on the Lord. Because when that time comes and you need to have, the pressure of life is pushing up, pushing up against you. If you have nothing inside of you that is of good report, that is of sound doctrine that is truth that is love that is of god then you begin to turn and have something else it's like you guys bought a, a tube of toothpaste from the store and you squeeze the tube of toothpaste and it ends up being like colgate and maybe your colgate you expect it to be red you're like oh that makes sense like if it's squeezed you expect red toothpaste to come out but if that stuff that's supposed to be red comes out and it's like brown you're like well, what is that that's not like colgate you, you you trip out see what you put inside of you will eventually come out of you and so what God wants us to do is to fill ourselves up with the word of God. So when that happens, we're able to have the word of God sustain us. In this moment, Elijah is saying he feels like a failure. Because he's, he's just done something, but he feels like a failure. He feels like he wants to die. He feels like he is messed up in every single way. And this is weird because he just did all these amazing things. What Elijah does also... In, in crying out to God and saying that he wants to die, he's almost low-key suicidal. He wants his life to be taken. But he also realizes that his life is not his own to take. He says, God, you take my life. He recognizes that God still is in control. 
And so he says, God, you take my life. God, you, you take me. He's in this place where he's feeling the weight of his emotion, and yet he's still grounded by the truth that God is sovereign over all. And you may be feeling like that right now in your life. I don't know who you are in this room. And you're feeling and fear, like fearing that you're, you're in this place where you want to take your life. And guess what? God has said, hey, guess what? You owe, you owe me. I own you. You are mine. He wants you to know that he loves you. He cares about you. That your life belongs, and the Bible says, is, in, is hid in him. He wants you to know that he cares for you. What happens next is super interesting. He lies down, sleeps underneath this, this, this tree. And the Bible says in verse 5 and 6 that an angel came and touched him. In my mind, as I read this, I thought like he was lying down under a tree. And the angel came and like, kicked him in his ribs. Like, hey, wake up, fool. Like just kicked him inside of his ribs. That's how I read the Bible. I'm like, how did this happen? How did this happen in my, in, my, in my mind? That's how I read the Bible, like a comic. He like kicks him. Hey, wake up, dude. And he, he, he tells him, arise and eat. And he looked and, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank. And then what does he do? He lies down again. Now, hold on, hold on. Like he was like, like God, I want to die. Take my life. My life is horrible. He lies down. God sends him an angel, wakes him up, feeds him. And what does he do? Lies down like nothing happened. Like he just didn't get fed. Like he didn't he just didn't have like top chef angel like show down and like and, and like and hook him up with food. Like it's crazy. He misses the moment. He misses the moment to recognize that God is providing for him. And God did this. One, he cared for his physical needs. And I'll tell you this, God does indeed care for your physical needs. But beyond that, I want you guys to re realize and don't miss the sweet moments where God is actually providing for you. Like we can be so quick to complain about the things that are happening around us, like, like Elijah, that you forget that God is in actuality providing for you. Like we talked about James. Sometimes that suffering is allowing us to see that God is providing for us in every single way. And how do we do this? How do we grow in this ability to see that? We have to train ourselves to recognize the sweet moments in recognizing God's providence and seeing his hand. How? By being thankful. See, all of us have that one friend who's kind of like Eeyore. Some of you guys may not even know who Winnie the Pooh is, right? But Winnie the Pooh is this character in England, right? And he has this friend called Eeyore. And Eeyore is such a Debbie Downer. He's always complaining, always. And yet he has a house. And he has friends. And he has all these things going for him. But he always seems to find the negative in his life. So he's trained his mind literally to trust that everything is bad and horrible. And yet for us... We don't have everything bad and horrible. The Bible says for us as believers, 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says we are to be thankful in all circumstances. You may be wondering, what is the will of God for my life? What is my purpose? What am I to do? Here's one verse to tie on to that. He says this, that we are to be thankful in all circumstances for this is God's will for you who belong in Christ Jesus. We have to learn to cultivate a heart of thanksgiving. And we see God's patience with Elijah. Because in verses 7 through 8, guess what happens again? The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Let's back up. This dude ate one meal that sustained him for 40 days and 40 nights. How many of you guys have eaten one meal that can sustain you for like five days? One meal. No? Your moms don't cook that good? Oh, jeez. You guys are like, come on. Really? Why? No? 
10 days, 15 days, 40 days and 40 nights. That's some interesting protein powder if you ask me. Like he's just being sustained day by day by day by day. And yet he's missed God's provision in his mind. And God sustains him for this journey to go to this one place, the same mountain where God met with Moses, the same mountain where he gave these these Israelites the Ten Commandments. And the Bible says in 1 Kings 19, 7 through 8, the angel Lord again came a second time, gave him this food, and he was able to be sustained for 40 days and 40 nights. Don't miss God's provision in the midst of your pain. See, in the midst of his pain specifically, God gave him the strength for the journey. And guess what? God will also give you the strength for the journey, for the path that he has you on. Notice I didn't say for what path you want. Sometimes we're all caught up in what we want and what we want to focus on for our lives. And yet God says, I'm sustaining you for my journey, for my purposes. And that's a good thing. Why? Because God's glory is our good. God is always for us. He's always caring for us. If, if God was selfish, if God was, was a bad God and truly like horrible, that's a scary thing to know that my life is held in this God's hands. But yet he said, no one, guess, guess what? No, 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 no. I'm caring for you. Remember Job? Job who lost all those things. We talked about Job who thing after thing after thing happened to him. The Bible says Job's life, Job's life was sustained. And after that, he had more things and more children and more sheep and more oxen and more. Like all the things he thought he'd lost, he gained back more. And for the Bible says in Luke that for all of us, Peter comes and complains to Jesus and says, Father, Jesus, we've given you everything. We've given everything to follow you. And then Jesus tells, tells them, he straight speaks to him and says this, that there's no one who is lost who's given mother and father and lands and houses who will not regain tenfold in this life. Tenfold means a hundred times or ten times more. Like you will not like regain all the stuff you lost here, everything you thought you lost in this moment. He'll repay here and also in eternity to come. So what gives Christian hope, what gives us hope is the fact that God, God, our God who loves us, every time we think we're losing, everything we, every time we, we have this pain or a suffering, know that as we trust him, he has promised to repay ten times, not only here, but also in eternity to come. Again, Christians are a people who are marked by the hope of God. Verse 9 and 10, we see that he goes to this cave and he lodged in it. He hid inside this, this little cave. And then Jesus, uh, Jesus, or God, basically asks him this question. He goes, Elijah, what are you doing here? And he responds, I have been very jealous for the Lord. I've done all the things. I went to small group. I, I, I went on a mission trip. Like I did FNL. I brought all my friends. I did all the stuff. I've been the most zealous for you. I've been the most jealous for you. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenants, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even only I, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. It's kind of justified to some degree. He goes, I've done all these things, and yet all these people don't trust you. I feel like I'm a failure. Like I'm not, I'm not worth anything. And he goes, it's only me left. It's only me. I've, I've done all these things. It's only me left. He's wondering, am I worth it? Is God with me? And, and yet, this is the same guy again who prayed and fire fell from heaven. He's the same guy who prayed and the sky was shut up for three years and yet he's doubting. Which is interesting. How can a, a man who's lived that kind of a life still have doubt? Because doubt's a normal part of our human condition. And God himself, God is big enough to handle his doubt. He's not confused. He's not, 
pushed back. He's not surprised by our doubts. He's not confused by our pain. In fact, when Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, Matthew 28, he says, go out and make disciples. And before that verse comes up, we see this verse where he says he, he had all these disciples come to the mountain. And it says, some believed and then some also doubted. But in the next verse, he sends both people who doubted and both people who believed out to go and share the gospel. See, God is not pushed back. He's not concerned by your doubt. But he knows that he is the source of your power and your care and your ability to do what he has called you to do. So if you're having those questions of am I worth it? Is God with you? Yes, God is with you. Are you worth it? Heck yeah, you're worth it because God is with you. Because God is who gives you worth. God is who gives you purpose. God allows Elijah to fully vent his frustration. He lets him do it. Because God is big enough to make space for us to vent our frustrations. Like we talked about last week. He allows us to lament and to cry and to be real with ourselves and himself. Verse 11 says that God asked him to go out and stand on the side of the mountain. And there's this cool thing that happens where he goes out in obedience to the side of the mountain. And then the Lord sends a strong wind. And the strong wind literally tears the side of the mountains and broke pieces of the rocks before this man Elijah. But the Lord was not inside that wind. And after the wind, God sent an earthquake. But God was not inside that earthquake. Think about all this madness and craziness happening around you. And there is nothing. And then after the earthquake, there was a fire. So he has all these things coming and hitting at him. And he goes, oh my gosh, this great expression of God or who he is. And yet God did not speak in all those moments. And for some of us, we're chasing the hype. Right? We're chasing the hype of, for example, we have a great worship team. We have great small groups. And some of you guys just come to group because there's friends. And please, that's amazing. That's great. Do come. But know that God speaks more so outside of those things. Those things and miracles are just signs for us to point straight to God. The reason why we have an, an awesome worship team is because we, we, are, we have people who are gifted to serve God and they love God fully. And they give their gifts 100% to him in, in music, in song. We have leaders who are dedicated to loving you in small group. Like, please do come. But don't be caught up in the hype. The way that God then spoke to Elijah is amazing. He comes to him in a still, small voice. Not in the wind, not in the earthquake, not in the fire, but in a still, small voice. The voice of God, Charles Spurgeon says, came to him like the voice of gentle silence. It was gentle silence. And God spoke to him in the middle of that quietness. And he asks him the same question. Elijah, what are you doing here? Just go read it again. Same question. He doesn't rephrase it. He doesn't change it how it's supposed to be said. He asks him the same question. And he responds in the same way. Elijah is so hard-hearted, so stubborn, he's missed the point. He's seen all these things happen around him in whirlwinds. And he misses the point. So what does God do? Does God reject him? No. God then begins to show him that he has always had a plan. He begins to tell him in verse 14 and 15, I want you to go and anoint another king. I want you then to go in verse 16 and 17 to go and anoint another prophet. I want you to go and find another prophet. So he finds two prophets and a king. And through these people, he goes, no one's going to escape my judgment. It's not just you. And then he tells him at the end of this verse, verse 17, verse 18 rather. He goes, yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. What is he saying here? 
you're not the only one. I've always had a plan. I always have my people. I always have you in check. I'm always taking care of and taking care of my business, taking care of my people. And you might be in that place where you're at the height of emotion. Again, this man prayed and fire came down from heaven. He went and killed 450 prophets. And then he's running in fear for his life. And then he's lying underneath a tree wanting to die. An angel feeds him. And that food sustains him for 40 days and 40 nights. And still he has doubts about who God is and what he's going to do in his life. That just tells me that he's a normal person like you and I. Because I may not have experienced all those things. I may not have seen God in wind, in fire. But I know that God has been able to sustain me in my day-to-day life. And each one of you can speak to God's providence, of his patience, of his care. And yet we still doubt. And God says, it's okay. I'll meet you in that moment of doubt. I'll show you who I am. And I'll lead you to a place of rest. Remember we read Isaiah chapter 43. The end of chapter 43 of Isaiah, as the worship team comes up, talks about how we are to trust in the Lord. That those who wait on the Lord will soar on wings like eagles. And they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. And we talked about that progression. It's interesting. Because if, if you guys ever watched the show Radio Flyer, Radio Flyer is this old movie where these kids are running away from their abusive father. Pretty crazy movie. But they build a Radio Flyer airplane, right, using the Radio Flyer like a little, like, uh, little wagon, right? And so when they're trying to, to fly their Radio Flyer, what do they do? They find a little, like, ramp, and then they want to start by walking, and then they run, and then it, it, they set it off this ramp, and it actually flies. It's pretty, pretty insane, right? But that makes sense to walk, to run, and then also to soar. But in that scripture, it says that we are, we are first soaring, and we're running, and we're walking. Because God is trying to build in us, to train in us, to have patient endurance. It's not about the hype. It's not about running fast. It's about having a normal day-to-day walk with Jesus. See, one of the greatest miracles that you can see in your life is not just watching people's legs grow out or people who are blind seeing. That's amazing. That's great. But when you make conscious decisions every day, in the middle of your doubts, trust God. When you make, like, you don't roll your eyes when your mom says wash the dishes. Like, that's, that's, because that's disrespect. That's pride pushing up against, because you know you don't want to do that right now. Like, you already have your plans. You're like, I want to go somewhere. No, hey, go take out the trash. Take it. Like, and you don't even say, you're like, yes, mom. And you're like, oh, my gosh. Like, you are growing a culture of humility. And these things are so simple and yet so deeply spiritual. And these are the kinds of things that as you grow and as you trust God in those simple, small, mundane moments, I kid you not, watch God's providence as he opens doors for you. The Bible says he's, he's for the humble. It's okay for you to have all the leanings of emotions. It's okay for you not to be okay. It's okay for you to have those emotions and yet... Turn your heart to God. Trust God with those moments. Like we said, practice Thanksgiving. And one of our team members on, on staff, Jacob, would you guys know Jacob all the time? When something happens, good or bad, what does he say? He goes, praise God. And literally every single time something happens, he goes, praise God. Why? In that moment of just saying praise God, he is literally training his heart, training his mind. That whether he has good things happen or bad things happen, that his heart is to be thankful. And in that moment of humility, God meets him there. And many of you have been blessed by that. And I want you guys to trust and test this out. Go back home. As life happens to you, because life will happen to you, right? It happens to us. And we are also living this life. When things happen to you, trust God. Just say, praise God. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for, for I know this went wrong, but God, you have a plan. 
do that verbally. This is an actual physical practice. Usually we have like three steps. No, no, just practice saying, God, thank you for this moment. Thank you for providing for me. Thank you for being patient for me. Thank you for being a God who cares for me. And watch God be faithful to you. Let's stand and pray. Lord, I just thank you for this time. Thank you for uh, an example of a man like Elijah who has these highs of emotions, Lord God, a, a deep joy and a deep sorrow. A, a guy who can call fire from heaven and yet still doubt your presence and your power, Lord. Thank you for that example. Like we read in Romans, Lord God, that you wrote these stories, you wrote these truths in the Bible for us to see that, man, we're normal. That's who we are. That we are people who are broken and we are in need of you. But also you're a God who sees our brokenness, is not disgusted by our pain, disgusted by our sin, disgusted by our brokenness. And yet invites us into your presence, invites us into wholeness, invites us into your life. Lord, we thank you that you are an ever-present help. Your word says in time of need. Help my brothers and sisters in this room cry out to you. Help them be thankful. Let them practice that, Lord, so that you meet them at that point of hunger. We thank you and we praise you. And all God's children say, Thanks again for listening. To hear more messages like this, don't forget to subscribe and also check out past episodes. For more content from Calvary HSM or to connect with us, visit us on Instagram at CalvaryHSM805. Go live and love like Jesus.